Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. Before Drudes joins me, let me tell you that golf is back, not just at a PGA Tour level, but for you and me on the weekends. And if you're looking for the perfect place to start or even continue your golfing journey, then our friends at Future Golf are the ones for you. And with a special price in June and July for 19th tee listeners, a massive 20% off any Future Golf membership with the promo code, the 19th tee, there's been no better time to join then right now your membership includes free rounds over 100 discounted green fees australia wide a free professional lesson and x golf simulator session and of course the all important golf australia handicap and to their credit over the covid break the future golf team have added some epic new partners and are hosting amazing events right across the country once again so don't forget a brand new discounted price across June and July, 20% off for any new memberships, futuregolf.com.au forward slash join. Use that 19th T promo code for a massive 20% off any new memberships. Future Golf, play your way. This is the 19th T podcast, Kieran Marsh and Nathan Drudy back with you for another week. Now, Drudster, some 60 odd episodes into this little venture of ours, we've been very fortunate to have a number of fantastic Australian players uh, on this podcast. Uh, now, one name that has commonly come up in those conversations and we've yet to secure a conversation uh, is, I'm pleased to say, our guest tonight. He is one of the most popular players amongst his peer group on the uh, on the Australian scene. And despite some tough competition, I think it would be fair to say he is the pride of Sydney's Greek community. I speak, of course... Well, Dimitrios Papadaros. Dimi, welcome to the 19th team. Hey, guys. How you going? Very well, mate. Very well. Thanks for joining us. And, and straight off the bat, uh, where, where do you think you would rank in terms of the pride of Sydney's Greek community? As I said, some strong competition, but I think you, you run a fantastic campaign. Um, I'm definitely up there, but I think um, Brace might just have me at the moment. I'm still working on taking, him, taking his title, but yeah, I think at the moment he's got me covered. <laughs> Speak, of course, of, uh, of your manager, Brayton Astor, who was a guest uh, just a few weeks ago on, on the podcast. He did, did give us plenty of, uh, plenty of stuff on you uh, off air, so we'll get to that a little later on, Timmy. But let's, um, yeah. let's take it back to where it began. Uh, tell us about your connection to the game and, and how your, your journey in golf got started. Um, I started playing golf when I was about nine years old. I was into all sports as most kids are playing a bit of soccer and a bit of footy and did surf life saving and all that. And then I um, picked up the golf club you know, when I was about nine, just with my dad, we started playing together um, and then just went from there. I started playing all right as a junior. I started, you know, just loved the game and had a couple of decent results as a junior, winning a couple of things and just sort of got addicted and just kept going from there. You've got a connection now to Magenta Shores, but where, where was the first the first course where you applied your trade, the, the, the course on which you grew up and learnt the game? Uh, Tookley Golf Club, which is just five minutes down the road and then Magenta's five minutes in the other direction from my house. So I actually still do quite a bit of practice at Tookley and yeah, on the other side of practice at Magenta as well, so it's a good balance. 
How did you take to the game, mate? Was it an easy game for you to pick up or, or was it a game you sort of had to ply your trade at a little bit? Because I'd probably ask that question of every guest that comes on and we get a varying uh, degree of answers. But how did you find, find golf when you first uh, picked up that club? I think I found it a little bit easier than I do now just because of how when you're young, it's you just, you know, simplify things so much and it's just such a straightforward black and white game. Um, but then, you know, as you get a little bit older and you start getting advice and, you know, watching professionals and how other people do it, you, you know, it starts, you know, you get all these ideas of what you should do and what you shouldn't do and all this sort of stuff. So I think now, um, you know, through experiences, it, obviously I've had, I've had some really highs and a lot of lows in my career as well. But, you know, as I've learnt from them and I've definitely picked it up that, you know, the attitude that I had when I was a bit younger and trying to make it a bit bit more simple and straightforward as you can, you know. It sounds pretty cliche, but it definitely helps. What were your memories of, of junior golf? Anything that stand out, uh, you know, now that you look back on it some years later? Oh, definitely playing just the Jack Newton Junior events that used to go on. They were just a lot of fun. They felt like majors to us, you know getting ready and, you know, getting email, getting in the mail like the draw for two weeks' time and who you're playing with and um, obviously having the older guys that are playing in the state team and all that sort of stuff and travelling travelling around playing interstate series, that was a really fun time and really enjoyed it. And looking back on it, yeah, it was probably the, the best time, obviously having a team environment and coaches around you was really yeah, it's a fun time to be playing golf. It's very different to when you're playing professionally and, you know, a long way from home sometimes. Who are some of the names? You, you, we talk about the Jack Newton events. Who are some of the names of the players that you still might be competing against now that you came up with, Dimmy? Um, I used to play a lot with, well, Lincoln Ty was, you know, another New South Welshman that we used to play junior golf with, Jordan Zernick, Jake Higginbottom, Cullen O'Reilly. Um, yeah, there's just a few. Um, Matty Giles, Nick Flanagan and James Dinnies were a little bit before my time. Um, but they were sort of guys that I looked up to as a junior. So, yeah, there were a few of the New South Wales boys. And similar similar vein in terms of players you, you looked up to, and it might be more than one, but if I'm doing my maths correctly, you say you got into the game around the age of nine. It's probably at a time where... Tiger Woods really started to dominate. Was it a was it a Tiger type inspiration for you, or were there other players on the professional scene that you were looking up to as you were progressing through golf? Um, I definitely yeah loved Tiger, and you know was yeah just he was definitely my favourite player. But I was um I really enjoyed watching Sergio Garcia. I've always been a big fan of him since I was since I was young. So he was sort of yeah I just liked the way he sort of. It was pretty entertaining to watch, and yeah, I really enjoyed, really enjoyed him. But obviously, you know, some of the things when he gets a bit hot-headed and stuff like that on the course, probably not a good one to follow. But um, yeah, I definitely enjoyed watching him. Talk to us about the last couple of years um, prior to prior to turning pro. When did you when did you know that maybe this was the course that you wanted to take, and and when golf, I suppose, became less of a less of a pastime in your teens and more of a realistic career opportunity for you moving forward? I think probably when I was about 15 or 16 and I was getting into the New South Wales junior team and competing quite a bit and having some good results um, on the state and national level in juniors, I sort of wanted to 
pursue it professionally. So then I started taking obviously a little bit more seriously and practicing and get more coaching and a lot more committed. And my parents were very supportive of that. And yeah, um, they, you know, 100% behind me and trying to pursue being a professional golfer. And yeah, so that sort of, that was about the age I started getting into it. You, you turned pro in 2012, as uh, as Marshy mentioned just there, and, and you touched on the results. Was turning pro something that was purely results-driven or was there something else that was sort of, um, I suppose, a driving force behind making that decision to, to make this your career and make this what you do for a living? I think it, it probably wasn't a results decision. Um, at the time, I started... Um, getting a little bit of help from Andre Stoltz. He was just around. Um, I used to do a bit of practice at the Bado Bay driving range and he was there every day and he invited me to play a bit of golf with him and he was mentoring me a little bit. Then um, after a little bit of time, he started coaching me as well and he helped me out a lot with just the transition from being an amateur to a pro. So after his guidance for about a year or so, I was in the New South Wales development um, high performance team I wasn't really I was working behind the bar at the Norahead Sporties just a local local sports club boring schooners and then you know make five or six hundred bucks a week and then fly to South Australia to play the South Australian Classic and play decent run fifth or something come home and start pouring more schooners and then fly up to Queensland to do the Queensland Amateur and same sort of thing. I wasn't one of the elite amateurs. I was like decent, but I wasn't one of the top amateurs that was getting funding. So I was doing it a lot myself and my parents were helping me out. And then Andre said, mate, you might as well turn pro. Like there's no point you working and then playing. I said, he said, just bite the bullet. Let's go to Q school. So yeah, at the end of 2012, I went to Aussie Q school, I saved up a little bit of money and um, I didn't really have much of an idea what was going on. He just said, just go there and try and win it. And worst case scenario, you've got to finish top 10. Otherwise, you're not going to get a good category. And I had no idea about categories. I said, all right, no worries. So I was just really, like, enjoyed the challenge of being able to play a tournament. It was pretty much like playing a pro tournament. A lot of pros there, a few amateurs. And I was really just excited just to be there. And I ended up running ninth, and that got my full card. So I played all the Aussie events that first year. And that was pretty much how I yeah made the transition from amateur to pro. Yeah, you, what you like at pouring a schooner, Dimmy? Pretty good, pretty handy. <laughs> really, really good, actually. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, um, it's always something I can fall back on. Definitely, I'm a good can pour a good schooner. <laughs> I'm sure the boys at the club would be happy to have you back down there too, as well. Having uh, yeah, definitely. I pop down, pop down there every now and then to say good day on a Saturday afternoon for them. What's that moment like when you secure your card, Dimmy? Is it a sense of, um, I suppose, there's obviously a sense of achievement, but is it relief or, or how are you feeling when you've, when you've locked up your card you, and your next year at least uh, is sorted golf-wise? I, because I didn't have so much expectation and I didn't wait around quite as long as a lot of the top amateurs do now. And obviously, as I was saying, with Andre's help, with that transition, I don't know how I would have gone without his guidance because I think he made such a difference to me with my mindset. And I was just so excited to play. It wasn't like a relief. I was like, I was there. 
And if I got my card, it was great. If it didn't, it wasn't the end of the world. I was just, so it wasn't, it was more excitement than relief. And I was, you know, just obviously progressing. I made a big step and all of a sudden I was like, you know, a pretty good amateur in Australia, maybe around top 10 or something, but not, not one or two. And now I was a pro golfer and I'm getting starts in the New Zealand Open and the Australian Open, Aussie Masters, Perth International. And it was, it was really dream come true. Well, the Perth International is one I do want to touch on. Uh, in the 2013 Perth International, to be precise, you finished T3 in that year. And just some of the names that you, you beat, Brett Rumford, Nick O'Hearn, Bo Van Pelt, Brandon Grace. But none bigger on that list of names was the winner from today's PGA Tour event in Dustin Johnson. Um, if we're doing the, the full circle, Dimi Papadados, better than Dustin Johnson. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I had his number from early early on, and um, yeah, I've let him get over the top of me a little bit lately. But yeah, I've definitely definitely got him covered, and I'm sure he knows it as well. <laughs> what was the tournament like, though? Um, the tournament that was that was probably I think a very important tournament for me in my career because when I did turn professional. Those first, I'm not sure if I even, I think I might have made one cut in uh, the New Caledonia Open, which is like a tier two event, pretty small. I missed Vic Open cut. I got DQ'd at the New Zealand Open for hitting the wrong ball. I had a nightmare start and I was pretty much just just struggling. I was actually still um, working behind the bar to make a little bit of money at the time and I getting I had a few starts in the One Asia Tour as well, and I remember playing um, Nanshan the China Masters the week before Perth, and that was my biggest event. It was a million dollar event. Looking back on it now, it was like there was no gallery. There was it was just you know in the context, it was a very small event, but that was big for me. And Ryan Haller was telling me, you know, you're playing Perth next week. You know, don't get too overwhelmed. He said it's it's quite a big event, but you know you're a good player and just do what you do and obviously with Andre you know helping me out as well I just sort of I was just looking forward to the opportunity to play a European tour event and playing so well that week being in contention having a great finish playing with Bo Van Pelt Soren Hansen in the the second last or last I think it might have been the last round actually and I played well there To, to have a good finish like that not only the financial side of making a big check it obviously just gave me a lot of confidence to know that I can do it on at a quite at a very high level with you know crowds there with cameras following me around on the green you know walking up to the tee and doing a couple interviews and stuff like that so for me I'd never really been there and I've watched it and it's quite a big build-up to be in that situation and I really enjoyed being there and I performed well so it's something I could always draw back on so I think that was probably it was definitely a very important part for me to know that I can compete and I can play professionally and it was a great result. And Dimmy, you carried the momentum on because you break through for your first professional victory at the 2014 New Zealand Open, which fair turnaround, uh, going from being DQ for hitting the wrong ball in 2013 to winning the tournament um, just 12 months later in one of the most picturesque golfing parts of the world there in Queenstown, obviously at the, at the Hills course in Millbrook. Tell us about the, the breakthrough victory and, and, and a special place to do it as well. Yeah, that was an unbelievable week for me. It was just, 
obviously the year before I had a complete nightmare and I was disqualified after like the tenth, um, yeah, the ninth hole when I hit the wrong ball. So it's such a beautiful place to go there and to be there the second time. I was actually not in form again. I wasn't playing outstanding. I sort of came down a little bit after Perth and my best mate Daniel Ford was here. He's a um, he's a tiler and he's been working a lot over Christmas and all that. And I said, why don't you come to Queenstown and caddy for me? I need a caddy and it's the best place ever and we'll have a great time and there's nice restaurants and a few bars and it's just the courses are amazing. Just come out, just come caddy for me. I'll pay for your flights and your hotel and just carry the clubs and you know we'll just have a good week and on top of that we ended up winning and it was just yeah it was awesome unreal you've had a couple of starts uh, i just want to stay on queenstown while we're there you've had a couple of starts in the new zealand open across your career how many stakes do you reckon you've had at botswana butchery i had my first one this year to be honest cross that is a crime yeah my first one so it's a pretty yeah pretty um Pretty addictive joint once you go there once. I was probably did well to avoid it. I was more of a Ferg Burger operator at about one or two AM on the Sunday Sunday night after the final round. That's a that's a regular occurrence. But Botswana is a little bit. I haven't um, haven't won an, enough PJ Tour events to start eating at Botswana Butcher every night. Like yeah, Brendan Jones is the regular there. He just prints the money in Japan and just goes and spends it at Botswana every night. A nice joke for those people who may not have been to Queenstown, but uh, Ferg Burger being uh, arguably one of the most popular burger chains in Southeast Asia. Uh, the lines are out the door literally 24 hours a day, and Botswana Butchery may well be the best steak in Southeast Asia. So, a fair point you make, Jimmy. That well, yeah, I was just about to say, a fair <laughs> point you make. Me, maybe yeah, there's, there's nothing here under 40 bucks for a steak. <laughs> maybe your first few years yeah. were more aligned with the budget for Ferg Burger than. Uh, then then Botswana butchery, but uh, highly recommend. Yeah. I'm sure, and I'm sure Dimmy will concur. Anyone going to Queenstown finds room for both because they're both both worth the visit. I should definitely thank um, Jason McDonald and Scotty Hoskins, who actually invited invited me there for dinner last last year. So I hadn't even been able to take myself there yet. So <laughs> that was pretty nice of them. <laughs> Yeah, Dimmy, it's 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 a while between drinks until your next victory, and we'll get to the Vic Open in 2017. But I suppose I want to talk about that three-year period and what you learnt, what you went through in terms of breaking through for your first victory, and then and then having to endure a few lean years before breaking through again. Um, yeah, that was just for me. The win was fantastic. That opened up a lot of doors and gave me a lot of opportunity to get to um, the final stage of Japan Q School and European Tour School, Asian Tour School. And for me, the 2014 after I won New Zealand, I started playing a little bit average and I, you know, my game started going down a little bit. And then I hadn't really travelled. I'd only played in Australia. And then when I start, I played a few times in Asia, but not not anything like a full schedule and I had my Asian tour card that year as well. So I was traveling all around Asia. I had four invites in Japan. I got into the Dunhill links and I was just playing terrible. I was traveling. I was just not really, not really ready for it because I didn't have that experience with amateur golf getting flown around. And it was just very, you know, coming from working, you know, earning 18 bucks an hour, pouring schooners to you win, 
250 grand in three months and then all of a sudden you you're spending like a hundred and over a hundred grand in like six months and you're just watching yourself every week playing tournaments going bang 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 miss cut miss cut miss cut flights caddies all that sort of stuff and i remember i was at home before the dunhill links and i was playing terrible and i had all this bad run and i was like i'm actually in the tournament i've got to go and i've just missed it and I'm playing terrible and I flew over there and it you know it cost me to go to Europe and return flight and all that sort of stuff and I've shot like I would have come dead last or if not maybe second last if I was lucky and then jumped on the plane and flew all the way home and stuff like that it was really um really hard but it was I still sort of took it I did I was obviously upset in the way I was playing but I was still taking in the experience of being in these the, the always the good side of it being in these different countries having these opportunities seeing all these great players I was you know a bit of a golf fan and even being at the home of golf and seeing guys like Robert Rock and Alex Nairn and Tommy Fleetwood Rory McIlroy just walking around that was just a great experience for me as well so I never really looked at it financially as a bad thing I wasn't afraid to go there and lose my money and um I wasn't afraid to go there and play poorly. It was just a matter of just keep playing and just keep getting through. And eventually I started to turn it around. It was, yeah, I think it was a big open. It started, things started to get a bit better. Jimmy, when you get into to ruts like that and, and, you know, you have poor result after poor result and you're throwing in the added element of travel and, and the schedule being a lot more hectic than when you're enjoying life as an amateur, how, it's probably a two-part question as well, how quickly does it fade, you know, you lose sight of that that reason why you got into the game? And, and if it does, who is it that you turn to? Is it is it Andre Stoltz? Is it mum and dad? Is it your best mate, the Tyler, just to give you a bit of a reality check? Like, how do you overcome those periods when maybe you lose a little bit of sight of why you love the game? Um, it's definitely a combination. My parents, are the mum and dad are the first people I go to. They're very supportive, so... They help me out a lot. I've got really good mates around me that I can talk to. My coach, um, all the co- I've had a few coaches since I've turned professional, and they've all been, you know, helped me out a lot. Whether it was Andre Stoltz, Richard Woodhouse, and Gary Barter for the most of my professional career, and still currently helping me out. And they've they've all very supportive. But if you've got the right people around you, and you know, you have good perspective of what you're trying to do the hard times aren't as bad for sure tell us about gary barter there mate because uh, marshy we spoke about this last week but i reckon every second person that we speak to is involved with with gary tell us uh he was getting a clip for every mention of his name on this podcast he's a very rich man almost as much money as probably what he is from coaching (laughs) tell us about (laughs) gary jimmy um, yeah, he's a he's a great coach. He's been around for a long time, and he's a little bit under the radar. Well, obviously, everyone's mentioned his name, but he's sort of he's he's not the easiest bloke to get to see. But because there's so many, some guys want to see him, and his knowledge of the the golf swing and the game is just unreal. And you know, having a lesson with him is just a bit of a treat. You know, and even now when there's no tournaments, I still see him for a couple hours every few weeks and touch up on my game and just just talking to him about all aspects of the game, about other players, guys that are playing on tour, um, just relating to my game to theirs, 
what I need to work on, the golf swing, everything like that. He's he's an unbelievable, bit of a genius in my eyes. Well, yeah, it sounds like he's a genius in a lot of people's eyes, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, 2017 yeah. Vic Open. Uh, it was the Oates Vic Open back back then, uh, and you were the victor by two strokes over Adam Bland and, and Jake McLeod. Beat some other really, really good names. Lucas Herbert, Minwoo Lee, of course, both winners on the European Tour um, recently even. But uh, tell us about the Vic Open, winning that, what it meant to you, what it did for your career. Yeah, that definitely turned, got me back on track. I was really struggling for a couple of years and I was still enjoying the game, but it's very hard when you, you're not seeing many results and you're putting in a lot of hard work. So I had, after another um, poor year in 2016, I I just practiced all through Christmas, all of January, just as hard as I could. I put a good... Um, practice regime together and I really got stuck into it and I think um, yeah that that week it just I just everything came together and I had a good opportunity to win and I could draw back on my past win in New Zealand and know that I can do it and obviously the guys that were around me Blandy probably been the most experienced but a lot of the other guys hadn't won yet and although they had great careers and all that I that might have helped me that week a little bit, knowing that I've done it, I've closed it out, and I'm I'm very capable of doing it again. So I think I was maybe the second last group and ended up winning that, and that really gave me a lot of confidence and you know set myself up for a good year on the Aussie Order of Merit and just going forward for the rest of the year. Well, you continued your your good run of form uh, coming over here to the west to to WA for the. WAPJ Championship, where you won uh, that tournament by one stroke over Rory Burke. Uh, just confirming, that was definitely in Kalgoorlie that year? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was Kalgoorlie. Two-part question. Two part question then. What did you think of Kalgoorlie? Yep. Uh, and what was it like winning the WAPJ <laughs> Championship? Uh, Kalgoorlie's not too bad, actually. I didn't mind it. It was a good week, obviously, a lot of time spent at, you know, just having chicken palmers at the pub and, you know, a couple of beers in the afternoon. It's a pretty relaxed week. Um, the whole field, you know, the whole tournament's there and you're sort of, you're involved with the other players a lot more because there's obviously not much happening in Kalgoorlie and you run into everyone at the restaurants or whatever. The course is amazing. The, the condition of it's really good and it was just a really good tournament. And as soon as I got there, I really, you know, I just love the love the golf, of course, and obviously that you know coming off a win as well. I was pretty focused to go there and you know try and get another one. So yeah, that sort of that was a great week for me. And again, it's one of those things when you I had I was staying with a couple of my good mates that week, Tim Hart and Chris Wood, and we just had a good fun week. And you know sometimes those weeks they just they just keep going and. It turns into, you know, turns into a win. I think those things actually have a bit more, um, have a bit more effect on your result than you sometimes realise until you look back on it. Jimmy, we'll go to Portugal, uh, twenty eighteen on the Challenge Tour. You win the Open to Portugal. I, I'm curious how important in the context of your career this win is, because you've spoken already about the fact that you. Um, 
played an awful lot at home. We've seen your successes to date before this is New Zealand and then two events here in Australia. And you've also spoken about your struggles with travel. So what was it and how significant was it for you to break through overseas and, and prove to yourself that you had the game to go abroad and do it there too? Well, I went to European Q School. That was one of the four or five times I've been and I've missed. I missed again at the end of 2017. I missed the cut at finals. I just had a shocker and I had literally no status in Europe at all by then. No challenge to I had the worst category on the challenge tour, no European tour status. So I come back to Australia and I'm like, oh, I've just got to play pro-ams and whatever I get in Australia this year. And I go over to Cottesloe to play the Cottesloe pro-am. And just before I fly out, I get an email on the, would have been on the Thursday saying, give me your 37th reserve for the Portugal Open. Will you travel? And I thought, that's for the following week. And I thought, oh, I better chuck my passport in just in case. So I get to Cottesloe on the Friday, the practice round, and they email you 25th reserve, no worries. I played Cottesloe Open Saturday. And then I'm 15th reserve Sunday. They're like, it obviously slides really quick because they hold spots for the week before. And Sunday night they said, oh, you're, you're fourth reserve, but you'll get in. Will you travel? And that's, I'm... I remember sitting in the clubhouse going, all right, well, I've got to book a flight at the presentation. I'm sitting there on my phone booking a flight to go from from Perth straight to Lisbon. And I was playing the WAPJ defending that next week. So I had to call Kim Felton and say, sorry, mate, I've got to go to Portugal. And, you know, they've done all the posters and all that sort of stuff and ready for me to do the pro-am and all the promos. And I said, I've got to go. And he said, mate, just you've caused me the biggest headache. Please do me a favour and win it because this is a nightmare for me. I said, all right, no worries. And so it was just the one event. I wasn't going to get in any other events around the Portugal Open. I just thought I've, I've got to go down and just roll the dice. At least if I come top 10, I might get the week after. Obviously a win would be great, but I was I felt like I was playing well. So I said, who cares? I'm just going to go get stuck into it. So I just jumped on a flight with my one week's worth of clothes um, Kalgoorlie, flew straight to Lisbon, landed there, um, booked a hire car from a joint that was just around the corner, the cheaper one, just outside the airport. It took me about four hours to get my hire car, then I had to drive three hours down after that massive flight, and I, I'm jet lagged, and I'm just walking around down in south of Portugal in Portimao, having a practice round by myself, carrying the clubs, and I'm just FaceTiming the boys back at home, just going what's going on here? They're like, what are you doing? I was like, I don't know, really. I said, but we're in Portugal, so it's pretty nice here, you know, a bit of Portuguese chicken, nice weather. So, um, yeah, played that and obviously had a chance to win coming into the last, I think I was around the lead after two rounds. I dropped back after the third round, a couple shots behind. And I remember just saying for the, coming into the last round, I said, you're here now, you just, you just have to win. You got to. Sometimes you just got to do it, and this is it. So um, I won that, and then ended up staying there for another four months. I think. What bearing do you think, if any, it has on your mindset going into a tournament in that fashion, without any expectation, without 
any sort of pressure on you really that you've scraped in off, off a reserves list where you were sitting in the 40s two weeks out from the tournament and you come in and win the thing? Does it have any bearing at all on you going in and just maybe just it's, it's a little less tight in the shoulders than what it otherwise would be? I think um, possibly it's the opposite of that because sometimes you've got an opportunity and you've got your full card and the other guys that were playing was early in the season not to say they weren't trying as hard as me, but they had they had another 20 events to win if they wanted to. You know, if it didn't happen that day, it could have happened another one. I was there, I was like, if it doesn't happen today, it's not happening. I'm sitting back home and I'm sitting on the sideline doing nothing. So, and it was the most tightest leaderboard coming into the back nine. Like, there was so many guys within one or two shots. So, I was really close to coming 20th and winning, but the margin wasn't much. So... For me, I think the pressure was a little bit more because I really I had to win that because it was just going to be another year of doing not much. So coming down the stretch, I was pretty focused. I don't know. I don't think it affected me negatively, but I definitely knew the importance of me winning. Whereas sometimes you can go, if it doesn't work out today, it's fine. We've got plenty of other opportunities. There was no other opportunity, and I I realised the situation. So. And it was good I took advantage of it. And so with the momentum of that victory, take us through the next couple of months because you've, you've rocked up in Lisbon with one week's worth of packing for Kalgoorlie. And as you say, you, you, you're away then for another four months. So what's that experience like to, to get that win under the belt and really ride that wave for a few months? That was awesome. I remember getting into the European tour event. That got me exempt. It gives you like a, um, a European tour status, not not outstanding, but pretty good once you went on the challenge tour. So it gave me the opportunity to play both a bit of on both tours, which wasn't a great thing in the end because I was struggling to pass up the opportunity to play the odd European tour event, thinking if I did play well again, I could maybe win on the European tour and then I'm away even more. But I remember the next week I was playing Belgium, the Belgian knockout, and just rocking up and seeing all the boys there, you know, Screve and Rance and, you know, Blandy. And we're just having a bit of a laugh after the win and having dinner. And um, it just really felt like I was just so happy to be there. And it started everything that I was, you know, thinking in my mind that I wanted to do. It was starting to happen. And being able to play in Europe, just, just being in Europe, um, I just really enjoyed my time playing over there especially those next three or four months 2018 uh comes around and the australian open uh second at your home open uh behind honest abe what just tell us what that whole experience is like i suppose firstly playing in the australian open your home open but then performing so well and and almost uh taking the title that was pretty good because I had the the week before was the challenge to a final and I was running just outside the top 15 I think I was 18th going into the final and I I had to finish there was it's the 30 man field in the final and if I finished top four or four, I think it might have been six outright or at least top five I would have got a European tour card and in the first round, on like the 10th hole, I had a bit of a Sergio moment. I 
Tom Hawkman eight iron into the ground and after I've after I hit it in the water off the tee and then my next shot in the water and I've made triple and my head was gone and while I was you know throwing all the toys out of the cot um, I bent my eight iron without me realizing and it was a slight bend so three holes later I'm laying up on a par five that I just hit in the fairway trap and I'm still filthy that about my triple and I've just seen the fairway trap reachable par five. It's like drive a five iron and I have to lay up. So I pull out eight iron, I walk in the bunker, obviously don't ground my club, hit eight iron out, slam my club back in the bag, keep walking up while the other guys are waiting for the green. And it wasn't until the 17th hole that I was hitting my shot into the 17th and I pull out eight iron and I'm waiting for the guys that are a little bit behind me off the tee and I'm setting up to the ball like I'm doing a few practice wins. I thought, oh, that was a bit funny. And I looked at my club and it's just slightly bent. It's sitting a bit flat on the ground. And I thought, far out, it's bent. I can't hit this. And then I thought to myself, I've hit this. I hit this on the on the 12th hole. So I told my caddy and he goes, what are you talking about, mate? I said, I've bent my club um, and I use it on 12. That's a penalty. And he goes, did you use it? Are you sure you even used it? I was like, yeah, I'm sure. He said, you've got to be kidding. So I said, look, I'm not going to call, the, call an official now, but we'll do it after the round because if I bring an official here, it's going to slow up all the play. We're a little bit behind. I don't want to cause a commotion because these guys are going all right. I'm pretty sure I'm minimum two strokes, but I think I might be DQ'd because I know if you bend a putter and use it, you can't, you get DQ'd. So I finish the round, tell them what's going on. John Paramore's there and they're all... Um, the rules official was there, called Paramore, the head guy for the European tour who was in England, said, told him what was going on. He, and he couldn't believe it either because it was such a slight bend. It was barely anything. And he said, um, then they even called the PJ tour official to just double check. And yeah, it ended up being a DQ. So that was another one of those nice flights home. I just um, packed up my bags got the next cab, jumped in it, drove straight to the airport, which was about two hours away, paid my 150 for the cab, jumped on the flight straight back home and um, then came second at the Aussie Open the week after. So that was a good bounce back after a, a massive disappointment for me after what was looking like going to be a pretty good year. Mate, we shouldn't laugh, but Jesus, what a story. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but... I've had some shock. Oh, credit to you for for uh, having the the honesty and the ethics to uh, to dob yourself in there, mate. Because I'm sure there are players around the world who, I suppose, one maybe wouldn't even notice, but two, if they did, they'd probably keep it very quiet. And if it was as minor as what you you, you said it was, um, you deserve a, a big pat on the back for uh, actually bringing that up with the rules official. Yeah, yeah, thanks. So. It was just one of those things, you know. I would never. I couldn't even, you know, if there's a grey area with the rules, I'll just penalise them. I couldn't stand to think of doing something like that. But at the same time, um, yeah, it was pretty costly and it was a stupid mistake. But, it, yeah, it didn't. I don't know if I deserve to get that much of a punishment. But um, it was definitely nice to come home and I had a bit of time, you know, about the, extra, the rest of that week off before the um, Australian Open. So I did a bit of practice and... It was at the Lakes Golf Club, which I used to be a member at. I had 
my cousin, Tony O'Rourke, who was a member at the Lakes Golf Club, caddy for me that week. And he's a very positive guy, great, great guy to talk to. And we just um, just went out there. And oh, my game was, I was playing well. And it was a course that I was very familiar with. I really liked the Lakes. You know, it rewards you being aggressive off the tee. The greens are very tricky and undulating, but I'm, I tend to be a good putter sometimes. So that definitely helps. And Australian Open, just one of those events you always get up for. It's like, a, you know, I'm obviously, I don't play very many majors. I've played the one, but the Aussie Open for me is, you know, nearly as, as good as it gets being in Australia. And, you know, to, to be in contention and have good results there the last few years has been great. And to win one one day would be unbelievable. Well, you talk about playing in a major and you, your second finish or your second outright at, at the Aussie Open in 2018 meant that you got a start in, in the Open Championship at Royal Port Rush. Um, I, I suppose we'll, we'll touch on the experience of playing in a major in a moment, but was that in the back of your mind at all? That, or were you just too concerned with other things, that the fact that you could potentially be getting a start uh, in in what is, uh, I suppose, I don't want to speak on behalf of Marshy, but it's my favourite major of the year. Is that in the back of your, your mind at all, that you're thinking, Jesus, I could I could be, have a start here at, at Port Rush? Yeah, I don't, not really. Well, it wasn't, you know, you're very aware of it during the week and things like that. But I think the position I was in in the tournament, I started playing really well, you know, in the middle of the, final round and I, I got pretty hot and I made a fair few birdies and I um, once I birdied 11 um, birdied 12 and then 13 I sort of just missed the birdie like a, I had a great pitch and just shaved the edge to make another birdie and I was really making a bit of a charge because Abraham pretty much had it wrapped up but um, I just missed the birdie on 13 and then 14 the par 5 I was I hit in the sand and laid it up and spun it back to 60 feet and ended up four putting that to make double bogey. And pretty much, you know, while I was during the hole, you know, once I hit that poor pitch shot in and then I putted up and down the slope and back up and as it, it was all just falling apart for me because there was a, there was definitely 20 minutes there where I was like, Oh, probably an hour well when I made a couple of birdies I was like I'm in this and I started you know really aware of where I was at on the leaderboard and that I was in range of winning and I sort of thought I've got a chance here and I had to really push a little bit and once I didn't really look like I was going to birdie the 14th and then you know I hit that bad part to make it looking like I'm going to make bogey I was just so shattered at the time that you know I ended up making a four putt and I make double Luckily, I bounced back in a birdie 15 and 17 to have a really good finish and finish outright second. But you're so caught up in trying to win the tournament and then trying to have a good finish because you know everyone's just around you. You're not really thinking of how much money you're going to make or what position you're going to finish or what you're going to get for it or anything else. You just really focus on trying to have as lot, you know, make as many birdies as you can coming in and just yeah, trying not to lose focus again like I did on the 14th. Timmy, we'll get to Royal Port Rush in, in just a moment, but uh, a question that I had for you, given you stood next to him in a number of the presentations after that tournament, how short is Abraham answer? 
official listing has him at five seven, but that uh, that looks generous at times, to be honest. So so having stood next to the man, how short is Abe Anza? He's yeah, I think he's. I don't know if he's quite up to my shoulder. He's pretty short, but yeah, five. He might be five seven with the with the metal spikes. Um, he could yeah, he could definitely ride the bottom weight at Randwick. I reckon on a Saturday if he was you know if he cut the cut the tacos out. But um, yeah, um, he's he's pretty small, but he he rips it and like it's unreal watching him on TV. Like he's been playing so good. I think. I don't even think he missed a green last week in the final round. So he's just an absolute flusher. And it goes to show you don't actually, he would probably hit it longer than me and I'm twice the size of him. So, you know, if you've got the right technique and yeah, like I was saying, he's pretty, he is pretty short, but he, he gets it out there and obviously gets the job done. I guess to the Open Championship, uh, Drew's touched on it earlier, but when you were growing up, where did it rate for you in terms of its significance? I mean, I think people quite neatly either fall into uh, the Masters being their favourite or the Open Championship being their favourite. So as a golf fan growing up, what was the significance of the Open Championship for you? Yeah, that was definitely, definitely up there. I mean, it's hard for me to go past the Masters. I've always loved watching the Masters and get up for that. But same with, they're all unbelievable. Being there was just a very um, unbelievable experience. There's just so much happening, the atmosphere and the vibe. And just the whole week for me was just unbelievable. It was so good. And, you know, the way they set the course up is so much, so different to any other, even European tour event, Australian Open that you play in. The grandstands, the crowd, yeah, just the whole aura about the whole event just amazing. We spoke to Jake McLeod, who you obviously shared the week with, and I think one of the funny things that he spoke about was the appreciation of the, the British golf crowd, that, that they probably treat you a little differently to most um, golf crowds around the world, and he was quite surprised at how little he had to do to get a, get a clap. They, they do seem to love it a little more than most over there, don't they? Yeah, they're massive golf fans. They really appreciate it. They're so respectful when you play. They, you know, you might hit a bad drive and they, you know, they, you can nearly see that they feel for you if you're not, because I, I played pretty average in the first round and people are really supportive, you know, instead of like you see around the world and even some tournaments, you know, they sort of like, they're nearly, they, they enjoy seeing pros play poorly, whereas in, in the UK, they really want you to do well. They love the game. Even I had some people like on the range coming up with photos of myself to sign. I've never had that. That was like ridiculous. I thought I was like, oh yeah, no worries. I had like little printouts of me, and I was like, yeah, how good this? I was just double checking they had the right bloke. But um, <laughs> it was it was definitely an amazing experience. And yeah, I mean, just just getting to play, just even the practice rounds. Um, getting to play with some of the best players in the world and it's very hard to stay focused and not be a golf fan that week and realise you're there to play well and do a job. So it was it was pretty good and I think um yeah, it might be a bit easier the next few because that first one yeah, definitely a lot to take in. Jimmy, uh, speaking of the practice rounds and, and staying focused and playing amongst the best players in the world, Jake uh, Jake told us a story um, that I wanted to probably get your version of events because he positioned himself quite differently to you in the story. 
whereby um, the greatest golfer who's ever lived, Tiger, uh, Eldrick Tiger Woods, I should say, uh, cut in front of your group in a practice round at Royal Port Rush. Now, Jake uh, positioned himself as the quiet, polite country kid from Townsville who was very, yes, Mr. Woods, no, Mr. Woods, and, and said that you, in fact, talked Tiger's ear off up the fairway of the, uh, of the first, so much so that he skipped out and, and continued to go off on his own. Um, so can you talk us through your experience with walking a fairway with, with the greatest golfer that's ever lived? Yeah, it was pretty, um, pretty awesome experience. That was the most nervous I was all week. That was Tuesday morning. <laughs> we just walked off the range and we're playing with Ryan Fox and McLeod. We just put our names down together. We're off at about eight o'clock trying to get out early and mind our own business and you know try and not get too carried away with everything that was going on and we walked I walked through the tunnel and I was running a little bit late and there was all these people on the tee and I didn't really register what was going on and I just said to my caddy Rudo you going I said he's a bit busy here he goes yeah the big cat's here and I was like oh yeah there he is so he's on the tee just tired he's just there having a practice swing the, the grandstands are quite full and People are starting to line up the fairway a little bit, waiting, and he's just waiting for the group in front to clear the fairway. And then I was like, you know, what's going on here? Are we actually, are we, is he playing with this? What's he, what do you think he's doing? And that his caddy chimed in and said, oh, we're just going to play up, play up the first, and then we're going to cut back, cut over to the tenth. We just want to play the back nine. We're just going to play this one just as a bit of a warm up. Said, yeah, yeah, that's all right, no worries. Um, and then Tiger just, as he does, just flushes it straight up the middle and he sort of wanders over and they're about to walk off and he goes, thanks, guys, I'm just going to play the first and cut across to the 10th. I'll go through unless you want to hit up, um, whatever you like. And he's, he started walking off and I was like, oh, no, no, wait a sec. Yeah, we'll come up. No worries. We'll come up with you, Tiger. We won't wait. And then off we went. We are all just jumping on the tee just as quick as we could, just hitting up and just so we could walk up, at least play one hole with him. And yeah, in my mind, we all hesitated, we all sort of looked at each other and as nervous as we were, just just from his like presence, I was just like, there's no way. I'm like, like it's your own fault you're that good, mate. I'm, I have to play at least a hole with you. So I've played a, I've played a major with Tiger. So that's pretty good. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty accurate to how, to how Jake told the story as well, so... Good to, good to see you're the uh, the voice of reason in the group yeah. with the, with the uh, I thought Foxy would have been would have been all over that to be honest. But um. well, he was actually jumping like he was. Um, yeah, I'm sure Foxy probably would have said it as well. Like we're all just he was sort of smiling at me and I was laughing and McLeod's just sitting there. Just we don't know what's going on. I thought we have to do this. Like it's, you'd never ever. I would never forgive myself um, if I didn't. You know. If I if I didn't say, hang on a second, he would have just been walking up the fairway, and I would have just been heartbroken. So I'm glad we did, even though I, I think I don't know how Jake felt. I'm pretty sure it's probably the same. But we're all just absolutely shitting ourselves. So it's pretty good. <laughs> Very good, mate. Um, the first shot in the major feel like a breeze after that. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us. I suppose we've got a couple more topics that we want to get to and, and you've been generous with your time and we're conscious of the time over in Sydney, but we, uh, I suppose the, the past couple of months have been pretty difficult for everyone. 
How's it been for you? What's next um, with the European tour and, and where's everything at for golf for, for yourself? Because we've had a few guests on and, and things are in a little bit of disarray at the moment, but uh, where's everything at for you? It's been, I haven't played a tournament since the New Zealand Open and I've done a little bit of practice. I've just been playing, just trying to keep busy. But the first event that actually popped up was um, next, uh, in two weeks, they've got two events on the European co-sanction with Challenge Tour and European Tour in Austria that I got into and I've I decided not to go simply because of I was I'm in area, I had everything booked, flights, everything um sorted, ready to go. I just had to pretty much get on the flight next Saturday. But the more the last you know, especially the last week with how many guys on the PJ tour are getting sick, caddies, people are pulling out, have to quarantine on the way home from Sid um from Vienna. Um, two weeks in Sydney, just sitting in the hotel room. I just thought, and on top of that, there's the opportunity or not the potential to get the coronavirus and be stuck overseas without any travel insurance because they don't cover for pandemics. So I said, what could have been like, it looks like a, a, a pretty good opportunity could turn into a nightmare pretty quickly. And I thought, you know, everyone's in the same position. And I think if I was in Europe, I would probably go. But the fact that it's just so far from home and all the testing I'd have to do at each airport and going through Doha and landing in Vienna, I just thought it, it might not be worth it right now. You know, I couldn't, I wasn't 100%. I was pretty, pretty keen, very keen to go, but I just didn't think it was the right thing. So it looks like I'll be just um, trying to keep busy with a few programs, maybe in a month or two up in northern New South Wales and then play the WAPJ in October that'll be the first Aussie tour event I'll play because I don't I highly doubt I'll be going to Europe this year the way things are looking it's good perspective to me I suppose and you only have to look at how quickly things have spiraled in the PGA tour world in the last week to see that it, it, it won't take much you know and I think that Keith Pelly and the European tour have been quite smart and how I suppose prudent they've been in this situation they haven't rushed back um, and and I think that for players such as yourself, the perspective that it brings, if you don't necessarily get back into tournament golf until the Australian summer, it's probably not the end of the world comparatively to, to your health and safety, really, is it? Yeah, definitely not. And I'll look back probably, well, hopefully when it, it all clears up, you know, in six months or six or eight months or whatever it takes, but probably look back and I don't think me not playing those events in Austria are going to cost me too much. Whereas if I do go, it could turn into quite a, you know, it's just going to be a bit of a punish even going over there. So I just thought, you know, just, just, it, just make the most of the break while I can and be really fresh and work on my game. And when it, when everything does turn around, it just be ready to go again. Right. Now we've got through all the serious stuff. So we're going to finish on a bit of fun, Demi. Um, and oh, by yeah. fun, I mean uh, your your Instagram account is a is a veritable treasure trove of information when it comes <laughs> to having a bit of fun. I think so. <laughs> both myself and Druids have have taken a bit of a scroll, including all the way back to your first photo you ever posted, which we'll get to shortly. Um, but I've just got a couple <laughs> of questions are going to rattle off here. So, um, as I said at the start, you're obviously a very popular figure in the game, um, marketable, in fact, in in the Sydney market. 
a good-looking Greek rooster such as yourself. You've picked up a few sponsors. So uh, off the bat, I'm wondering um, how enjoyable it is to drive your Lexus to the Coogee Bay Hotel for a schooner. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, the Lexus is just yeah, amazing car to drive. And yeah, it's nothing like, especially, you know, staying at, being at home so much now, I get the opportunity to cruise around in that as much as I can. So I'm definitely enjoying that and getting down to Coogee Bay Hotel for a schooner with the boys on a Saturday afternoon that turns into Saturday Sunday morning pretty pretty easily. Um, it's, yeah, it's awesome spot down in Sydney. So there's a lot to be happy about while I'm at home. You know, there's definitely a lot of positives. I'm sure they'll both be happy with that and, and we'd be more than happy to have a conversation with other Lexus or Gucci Bay Hotel if they're interested in commercial opportunities in the podcast space. So uh, still on the lookout for an official vehicle partner of the <laughs> I think, 19th day I think podcast. We'll just, I think we'll just meet Dimmy over at the Gucci Bay Hotel for a fine, mate. That, that might just be the first step. <laughs> Maybe um, I'll pick his up on the way. In the Lexus. There you uh, go. <laughs> pay to play. Uh, next question, Dimmy. Uh, what was more significant for you, your win at the 2018 Open to Portugal or the Cronulla Sharks 2016 NRL Grand Final victory? Cronulla Sharks, for sure. <laughs> that was massive. That was so good. I was there. It was just That was unreal. So, so good. That was so stressful as well. I went to the game and my mate, Forty, the Tyler that I was telling you about earlier, we both got tickets and we... We just bought them online, had no idea. And there would have been 100,000 people there, maybe 10,000 Melbourne supporters. And we were right in the middle of the 10,000 Melbourne supporters. I don't know how we got those tickets. And we just sat there. We thought it was the biggest stitch up. And we just copped it the whole game. But it was really sweet, you know, to get the win. And I've been diehard Sharky supporter since my first present, I think, was a signed Sharks jersey. So... Yeah, I've been a bit of a diehard and that was good to get that one get that one away so we don't have to cop any more shit. Very true. Now if golf is golf is your, your passion in life and, and you thoroughly enjoy playing the game, fishing can't be too far behind. Uh, you have posted equally as many fishing photos as you have on the golf course, including some impressive catches as I keep scrolling through your Instagram here, back to a marlin caught uh, some years back, 154 kilos. Is that is that's not Photoshop, Dimmy? No, no, no. 154 kilo marlin, blue marlin. That was the first time I went game fishing. One of the guys at the golf club at Tookley that I used to um, play with of a Wednesday he was a pretty keen fisherman. He said, oh, we go out game fishing quite a lot. Would you be interested? I said, yeah, for sure. So I rock up um, at about 4 a.m. just to the at Belmont and just at the wharf. They got the their nice massive boat there and the boys are there already on the beers at 4 a.m. before they're going out fishing. So I thought this was going to be a bit of a treat today. And we drive out there and they're telling me all about what to do and all this and we're probably not going to see one and no one ever catches it the first you know first time they go out you know sometimes you go out 20 times and you never get one so we're cruising around for a few hours and then all of a sudden the reel goes off and this massive blue marlin starts flying through the water and i've just picked up the rod and they just said just go as hard as you can here because it's going to going to take a while so it ended up taking just under an hour to reel it in which they thought was actually pretty good time because sometimes you can fight them for up to like four or five hours. But yeah, that was pretty cool to get that one off the mark. And 
since then I've been pretty keen on the game fishing side of things. So I used to just go and catch snapper all the time in my tinny, but now it's sort of I've got the taste for the for the game fishing. It's pretty fun. And we touched on your physical presence comparatively to Abraham answer uh demi but i'm curious continuing on the instagram feed um treasure trove would you back yourself in a fight against john claude van damme <laughs> um no i don't he doesn't so. look like he used to but he still scares me yeah he's so still so fit and um yeah some of his moves you know that he that he shows you just like yeah he'd probably he'd knock you out before he even knew what happened so yeah, I don't. I think he might just have me covered there, and he's still a unit. Like he's, yeah, pretty unreal. But he's actually, um, he's sneaky small too. You don't realise how, like in person, he's a lot smaller than you think. Watching him on TV makes them angry. I hear small man um, syndrome. Now yeah, we th- this one is potentially the one I'm most nervous about, but I have to ask it because it seems to appear in an awful lot of your social media content. Uh, what I will say prior to asking the question is we, we we don't have any sort of language warning on this podcast so take this where you need to but can you tell us about the smus club oh no that's just um that's actually yeah a lot of people think it's worse than what it is but so <laughs> my 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 father and my godfather um spiros and angelo they're both from the island of Lefkada in greece and they both, my dad was a, a wrestler back in the day and Angelo was a boxer and they always, you know, talk about, you know, just fighting back in the day and stuff like that. And when they say, you know, like the word, like even my dad watching Cronulla play and he goes, oh, smussing, because they, instead of saying smash, they say smuss. They can't actually, like, but just by their accent. So... My my relatives and I, who are similar age to I, um, Paul and Frank, we just like piss ourselves laughing because they say go smuss them, and they, we always take off their accent. So they're the smuss club, and you know that's how it all sort of started. And everyone thinks it's something so much worse than that, but that's pretty much all it is. It's just an inside joke for us, and then everyone starts talking about it, asking what it is. It's like, that's pretty, that's legitimately all it is. Yeah, it's just um, yeah, we're just smashing them. <laughs> Well, that's uh, not only is that a great story. I'm quite relieved comparatively to where my my Google searches of of, of that topic yeah. had taken me to. So that's uh, a relief yeah, on, yeah. a relief on both parts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you have been very generous with your time. So I wanted to end on a high. Your first photo that you posted on Instagram was a picture of yourself uh, and an, an unnamed associate. I didn't recognise the gentleman, but you were both wearing budgie smugglers and holding a bottle of Belvedere vodka. So um, probably two-part question. First being, um, interesting choice for your, your very first photo on social media. And, and secondly, how much do you think you've grown up in the content that you post? <laughs> I didn't month? think that's got it. That, that'll be gone in the next three minutes. Um, right, hold on, I just screenshot it. I got it, mate. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, that was, um, yeah, I think that was, yeah, when I was, that was a pretty funny story. It was a bit of a long one to go through, but we, yeah, that was in on the Gold Coast. Oh, we rocked up to um, a nightclub, um, me and a few of my mates, after missing the cut at the Queensland Open. So we we went to the 
um, this nightclub on the Saturday night. It might have been, I was the Friday night actually, and we walked in there and they had, they had a, it was a male modelling comp, so just to bring all the girls in. And we're like, oh, what are we doing here? This is no good. So we just walked in there, had a couple of drinks, and this the manager comes up and she said to us, oh, hey, guys, how you going? Can I borrow one of you for the male modelling comp tonight? It's, and we're like, oh, what's going on? They said, oh, well, we've got these models and they're going to do walk on the runway. We've got judges from, like, The Bachelor and MTV Fashion and all this sort of stuff. Can we get one of you to do it just for a bit of fun because we're short short one guy and we're like I'm thinking no way in the world and she said if one of you do it there was four of us there and the first round of drinks was 60 bucks and we had no money that was the first year on tour and they said she said um I'm gonna give you a hundred dollars cash and shout all of you drinks for the you and your friends drinks for the rest of the night so the boys are like oh we have to do this someone has to do this so of course, I get um, I get peer pressured into doing it, and I walk in, walk out the back, and all these blokes are just ripped as, and I'm you know, just sloppy as, just had like a pepperoni pizza and three beers, got golf tan, like fat as, like horrendous, as I still am, and um, I just said this is a joke. I said to her, look, I can't do this. This is this is so bad. And she said, no, 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 you have to do it. Like, you're here now. All you have to do is walk in what you're wearing up and down. And I thought, like, two, a couple of guys had their shirt off. And I was like, oh, they're doing push-ups and stuff. And I thought, this is a bit weird. So I said, all right, if I just have to do it in these my normal clothes, I'll do it. So I walk out, do a bit of a shimmy, walk back in. And she said, well done, you're through to the second round. I said, what's the second round? She said, oh, we've cut it down to four people now. Now you've got to do the same thing in these. And she gives me these fluoro orange budgie smugglers. So what am I doing with them? She said, just put them on and walk out and do the same thing. And I said, I can't, I can't do this. This is like, this is so embarrassing. Like I'm so out of shape, I'm not doing it. And she said, you have to, you've come this far, just do it. And I said, all right, give me another tequila shot, let's go. So. have a tequila shot she walks out to go get me the shot i take my sock because i'm thinking i've got i've got like nothing to give here so i thought i'll take my socks off and i chucked them down the front of my front of the um the speedos the budgie smugglers just look like i was packing a bit extra and i walk out there and by then i was you know in a pretty good mood and i started doing a bit of a dance walked around come back in and this, the nightclub was packed. Like, I've never seen a ratio of so many girls. And I, I walk out, walk back in, and one of the judges walks in and goes, who was that? What was that? And I was like, I'm so sorry. I was only joking. Like, I'm not meant to be here. And she said, that was amazing. She said, come over here. She said, you've won this. I said, what do you mean? She said, you've won. 100%. We want, you've won the thing, but we've only found out you're not even entered. Like, we need your details. I said, I'm not don't worry about it she said look you either tell me now that you'll accept the winner's prize and you'll come back for the final in three weeks or you don't worry about it and we'll just give it to another guy who actually wants to do this as a career but I'm telling you you can this is you and I said and I'm thinking 
there's no way I'm coming back for this ever again. This is a disgrace, but there's no way I'm doing this without getting recognition. So I said, all right, I'll come back for the final. So we all walk out and all the guys walk out there and everyone's standing there and none of them know that I've actually won. So they picked two guys to get through and that was the other guy in the photo. So I'm just standing there and they go, and the winner is, and they say my name and the boys are just laughing their heads off and it was just a big embarrassment and they harassed me for two weeks straight to try and come up to go to go to the final and I was like, yeah, no chance in the world. And then that was... That was the explanation for that first photo, <laughs> which won't be there tomorrow. <laughs> I cannot believe I didn't ask that first. That's a that's a damn shame that that's the last question we asked because that's, it's a treat for anyone who's uh, for everyone who's made it an hour and six minutes in to take absolutely nothing away from your your nine year professional golf career to date, Demi. That's the best story you've told all night. That's outstanding. Yeah, yeah that was the that was the career highlight. Definitely. <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, what we're about 60 something episodes in, that could be the best story that we've had on this podcast. And it has <laughs> nothing to do with golf that's at all. <laughs> anyway, that's the point of this podcast yeah. is to find out all these tidbit information. Uh, and I'm sure that people yeah, go to your Instagram account and they'll have absolutely no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I'm sure I'll regret telling you that one, but anyway, at least, at least it was a good one. <laughs> it was a cracker, mate, and uh, that was a, a yeah. great way to finish the chat. Um, it was a hell of a lot of fun having you on the podcast. You're going to be an absolute star in the future, mate. You already are. We know how talented you are and, and how hard you work at everything, and um, we can't wait to see you continue to flourish, and whether that's on the catwalk or on the greens, mate, uh, we can't wait to see <laughs> see what's in future for you Dimmy thanks very much for joining us on the 98T podcast mate it's been a lot of fun and uh, we look forward to chatting again soon no worries at all thanks for having me